I think the biggest thing so far is the atmosphere. So electric down here. And Baghdadis plays with this every single match. Roger Federer, yes, it's a packed house. But listen to him. They're singing and they're yelling, even on changeovers. Even when Roger Federer's winning points, the Greeks really get back into it. The Cypriots get into it. They're waving flags. You can hear from outside. Welcome to a new episode of God, It's Killing Me. Uh, in the last three episodes, we focused on some classics from 2005. We've moved a year to 2006. Uh, let me introduce ourselves first. With me is the sensational Rahul Desa and I'm Aditya Ayer. And today we're doing a slightly different sort of episode, which is... Um, our topic is the 2006 Australian Open. Uh, while we continue to focus on the final, which is Marcos Bagdatis versus Roger Federer, we'll be talking about the slam in general as well because uh, it just happens to be both Adi's and my one of our favorite slams of all time. Um, Adi? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're not actually giving me grief about today's date which is like... i was going to come to that i was, I was, I was really going to come to that but um yeah uh, okay so fine fine fucker because you brought it on yourself uh, before before we get to 2006 <laughs> let me just tell the listeners that we're recording on the 14th of july um what's the significance of this date adi uh to be honest, there's no significance of the date. It's just another day. Uh, there's nothing special that happened on 14 July 2019. Unless you're talking about cricket. Uh, which is... Yeah. I mean, no. Um, yeah, jokes aside, like, obviously, 2019, the Wimbledon final. Uh, I mean, sure, okay. See, look, I've watched Federer lose Wimbledon finals before. But... Um, we will obviously have a separate episode at some point dedicated to that final and it'll definitely be hell for a year on that episode uh, because <laughs> and my laptop might just short circuit with my tears by then but um, yeah um, obviously federal losing to djokovic in five sets last year uh, I- i've seen i've seen 2008 ayer and me watched it together uh, i've gone through a lot of pain in at least in wimbledon if not so much the other slams even though us open comes close but uh, yeah. yeah, last year was particularly painful for me. I, I guess uh, it, it's one of the only times in my sports following career that I sort of went into a real funk for like a good two or three weeks after that. A lot of people were worried about me, but obviously it's it's been it's a year on now. I am uh, I feel like I'm a patient uh, able to talk about how he recovered from an illness, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, fine. So, uh, without much ado then, uh, let's move on to a happier topic for you, which is a Federer win, right? In the 2006 Aussie Open. Oh, yeah. But listen, although it was was a first-timer in the final and an unseeded player in the final, it was a bloody difficult Grand Slam overall for for Federer, man. I mean, he didn't run away with it uh, <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, and that's the that's the beauty of this particular Grand Slam. That's why we are choosing to talk about the whole tournament this time. Because yeah. uh, if you just go through 
most of the men's draw and you know the results i i don't think nadal was playing the slam i think it was yeah oh, uh, his injury career had started uh, uh, by the side uh, but Absolutely. yeah I, as iir mentioned there were this slam was at least for me as uh, someone who had newly started uh, gotten back into tennis after the sampras era uh, it had been only a couple of years and you know federer was obviously my god at that point and you know he still is but uh, uh, yeah so after 2005 where federer pretty much ran away with any tournament he entered except you know uh, except the french but even the french yeah. you know tennis face nadal he was running away with that too so huh. we weren't really at least i personally as a federer fan wasn't Uh, used to watching Federer uh, show the kind of I mean obviously he was mentally strong because he was blowing away a lot of very competitive players but we weren't seeing uh, used to seeing him scrap and mm. I, and and I think it's a good time to point out when we did our last episode uh, the Federer Agassi final US yeah. Open final 2005 and we were a little uh, uh, unsure about what happened after that. Uh, uh as far as federer season was concerned i think we just mentioned that he played the world tour finals and he lost to nalbandian in a five setter but uh, as um, uh, one of your uh, colleagues and very good friend uh, koshik pointed out i think um, federer was actually injured after the us open final uh, he missed a few masters in 2005 he missed paris and uh, madrid and he missed basel too and uh, he then entered the um, the world tour finals injured and which is why he sort of uh, lost team by the time he reached the final so i think he was carrying that injury uh, not injury as such but he was carrying that time off into the uh, 2006 australian open too because he won doha before this that's pretty much the warm up tournament for everyone but um, i think uh, that's what he was Uh, uh struggling from rhythm wise and i think that's what we saw the effects of in this australian open right now yeah spot on spot on and spot on from our koshik as well a shout out to him yeah. for telling us about the ankle injury it uh, certainly affected him in the in the final of the masters cup yeah and uh you could see that his his right ankle was braced right through this tournament i mean um it wasn't just in the final against bagdatis which we will eventually come to but it was there from um uh you know from the from the very beginning uh, in the fourth round and i want to start with this match if that's okay yeah. with you adi yeah, uh where he plays tommy haas and what a fucking exhibition <laughs> that was man yeah, just a small build up to that game uh Haas basically had the number on Federer in Australia for a while. He beat him in the semi-final of uh, the Sydney Olympics in 2000, oh, um, yeah. and went on to win silver. He basically okay, you don't win a silver, you you lose yeah. your gold. So he lost to Yevgeny Kafelnikov. Uh, Federer lost to Pascual in the in in the bronze medal match. So, but anyway. uh his big uh, win out of sydney 2000 is of course uh, meeting his uh, you know wife and mother of his four children yeah. uh and then in 2002 when haas made this incredible run into the semi final and barely lost to safin uh in the semi final mm. beat beat federer in straight sets uh in in one of the earlier rounds yeah and in 
2000 and uh, now coming to this year in 2006 it was just sensational tennis right and yeah. it was an exhibition even when federer was dominating hearts in the first two sets yeah. you know fabulous uh, single handed backhand tennis and good <laughs> all kinds of beautiful strokes and then haas makes a comeback and win sets 3 and 4 which uh, bagdadis was going to make a habit of on the other side of the draw and federer just about nicks the fifth uh, but this match was really more than just the numbers it had you know it, it was really like like we um, established earlier it was really exhibition tennis with federer hitting a inside out backhand now just just think about this he ran yeah. around his backhand <laughs> yeah. i'm sorry He ran around his forehand, yeah, and I'm... executed perhaps like the the greatest shot uh, of the match, but only it wasn't because he also hit a winner around the post, um, the net post, and Haas like just couldn't believe it. But anyway, that 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 was the kind of form Federer was in, even with uh, Stefanko, Adi. Yeah, which which other match do you think? the fed which other federer has grand slam match does this remind you of if you really uh, like i mean this was 2006 uh, five sets uh, federer is winning the first two has the next two and federer nicks the fifth uh, but yeah yeah the french where federer lost the first two and sort of was right. on his way out of the french this That, after nadal right. this after nadal had crashed out already of course and yeah. this was so this 2009 yeah so has basically had like like you said like there was something about has of course we know very well they were good friends and they were actually one some of the best friends on the tour and yeah. Uh, yeah. and they used to practice together and has was obviously uh, the senior player in a sense yeah. uh, because of you know course. when has had his number earlier federer wasn't federer federer you know he was like still sort of this um sort of um, temperamental upstart who was just waiting to discover his sort of greatness absolutely so, yeah, this was a perfect point of time this round for match in the australian open 2006 i feel like was a perfect point of time where both these players were actually playing each other at their peaks uh, at their peaks. in in yep. in many sense like because federer bageling has in the second set you think Uh, this was just another Australian Open because till then he hadn't dropped a set and he had just taken two off Haas, who was the informed player in this tournament too, because he absolutely destroyed Gasquet in the first round match and Gasquet was no pushover back then. <laughs> That's I right. I mean, did backhands and you know, so yeah, I mean, Federer uh, losing two sets to Haas was uh, the start of something. Uh, that you know i personally got very used to over his australian open career where he uh, where there yeah. were dips in focus where he would suddenly there was a change in uh, rhythm of the match and federer could not run away with matches the way uh, he would on other surfaces so uh, for me this was the first signs of like fragility and like uh, you know some sort of thing where you know his dominance isn't all encompassing in every way so this was a great match to you know start this discussion with because has is has was one of my favorite single handed backhands back uh, in that decade too sure and it also uh, you know kind of uh, put on display a lesser known fact about federer during his dominance which is his ability to um, kind of like 
pull out that that you know that crazy Djokovic like clutch play tennis that um, he got going when you know his game wasn't flowing too well and yeah. like you don't associate Federer with that at all but in this tournament especially I mean after Haas there was of course another match which you're going to discuss I'm certain uh, yeah. where he takes on yeah. Davidenko and also Kiefer in the semis and also Bagdadis in the final which we will come to uh, yeah. None of them were easy for Federer. And mm. really, like, you know, when you look back at his numbers now, 20 Grand Slams and a lot of them against, um, you know, players of the caliber of Nadal, uh, Djokovic and Andy Murray, right? Yeah. You sometimes assume that this, when you see uh, Bagdatis in the final, uh, you assume that it was it would have been really, really easy for Federer. Uh, and... Mm. Uh, just the way, perhaps, like when you see Fernando Gonzalez in the final in yeah. Aussie 2007, and that indeed was a very easy one for him. But yeah. this really wasn't, and he 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 really had to like you know uh, buckle down and get through it. And he he did just that. He did a lot of what Djokovic does today. Yeah, I mean that's and that's actually an excellent point because people tend to take for granted. This particular generation before yeah. Nadal and Djokovic sort of hit their stride, uh, and, and if you just you know take a look at the seeds at this Open, you'll get a very warm and fuzzy feeling because that's pretty much <laughs> our decade of uh, following tennis. These names were in the top ten for a good ten years. That means these were actually solid players who never dipped as such. They were always yes. around in the reckoning. Uh, players like there was Roddick Hewitt, obviously, who had already won slams by then. There was Nalbandian, yeah. Davidenko, yeah. Lubacic, Gonzalez, Ferrer. These guys were around for a long time. They weren't just these one-slam wonders. And these were like career sort of uh, title winners who were just, just you know, struggling to take that final step to winning a slam. And it was never easy for Federer because the more they lost in these slams, the more badly they wanted it. And I think a lot of them gave it their all in this particular slam because Federer was at the peak of his powers. Nobody was mentioning anyone else when it came to contenders because Roddick and Hewitt were pretty much underperforming by then. And, uh, you know, these guys uh, really gave him quite, uh, you know, they gave him hell in this because I remember myself being pretty cocky during the Australian Open in the first three rounds, in the first week, basically, until yeah. he faced Haas. And then... When we then he came to Davidenko, and Davidenko, you knew was that career world number five. Like, whenever <laughs> we looked at his seeding, his rank, he was always either five or four. Four was like five the maximum, four, yeah. and like, yeah, correct. Yeah, that's and he was one of those players, those solid players, where you knew that he had everything in his game, he just sort of mentally wasn't used to winning on the big stage, which is why, uh, you know, like this, this particular match, um. The quarterfinal that Federer had to face David and Cohen is yeah. one of my favorite matches of 2006. Like, in every sense possible, like quality-wise, uh, uh, just the way the match went and just the kind of Federer it brought out, like yeah. the kind of uh, Federer that David Enko forced out because we hadn't seen this Federer till then. We had seen a Federer either losing a lot in the early part of his career. And then suddenly winning everything, except, you know, on French where he ran into this, like, kid. And then, uh, you know, he, he and suddenly on the hard courts, you're like, Federer, there's no chance he's going to. So, David and, and this match was like, I still remember it. I didn't even need to watch a lot of highlights 
of this match to sort of uh, get myself uh, uh, up to speed with it because uh, i remember the first two sets very well and i remember pretty much clutching onto my like bed in uh, in shock because you know fedra wasn't really uh, dominating the match davidenko was the better player for the first three sets yeah and i i, I don't know how davidenko lost the third tiebreaker it's really Five hard sets. to like wrap your head around it even today yeah five set like i mean it's bad enough being like set points down on serve like fedra yeah. was set points down on serve in the third set uh, yeah. two set points down then even in the tie break he was another three set points down and how do you lose that you're a, you're first of all you know you you come from a country that's really uh, known to be mentally steely almost like obsession really like ruthless when it comes to tennis of course exactly. sachin had well beaten fedra Just yeah. a year, just a year ago, and he was a Russian, and Davidenko was another very mentally sort of scrappy Russian. And you look yeah. at Davidenko, immediately think of a Bond villain. So like this yeah. was all that was to my, my head when he was sort of uh, literally had Federer on the ropes in the third set. I have no idea how Federer sort of pulled that out of six three yeah. down in the tiebreak, and you know, and then again six five down when Davidenko was serving. He had no business to win it, you know. He, a lot of that mentality was mirrored in the final. At the same time, uh, on the other side of the draw, uh, Bagdatis was also showing mental strength that a lot of twenty-year-olds at that point weren't showing, uh, yeah. and the commentators were basically going nuts watching this. Right? Um, yeah. He was winning all kinds of five-setters. Uh, he alternated sets against Radek Stepanek in the second round. Yeah. Uh, he was two sets up against Lubitsch. Uh, in the quarters, and then uh, lost the next two, and somehow won the fifth. Now, if you are wondering if it's tougher to do that, you know, which is basically lose momentum completely, or if it's tougher to come from, you know, two sets down, he did that also against <laughs> Nalbandian in the semis. And Nalbandian—that's uh, like a major <laughs> of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but honestly, I can't. I, I don't know. I suppose I, because I, I watched the Lubitsch match live. I in fact, bunked a couple of uh, you know exams uh, leading up to I, this was this is the our final year of BSE in in Xavier's, yeah. and uh, I thought, see, man, I'm going to flunk in any case. Like screw these <laughs> exams. Let me go watch this amazing match. <laughs> it was. It was incredible. I honestly think it's harder to do what he did against Lubitsch than what he did against Nalbandian because, like uh, we said earlier, uh, when you're two sets down and you're one the next two, I mean, yeah. you, you really momentum. have momentum on your side going into the fifth, yeah. right? Mm. But uh, yeah, my God, man, that guy really made heads turn in this in this Aussie Open, and you could see the crowd support that he had in the final when he was okay. getting in there. And and you remember the commentators across the tournament. First of all, they started with where Cyprus was on the map, and then <laughs> then they started fucking going into his personal life, how he's come up in this small island that's smaller than like Minneapolis or some shit like that. That's right, and that's then, right, yeah. and then they kept going on and on about you know how this basically they pulled out all the stops to make it this all-American fairy tale. Where like this guy from a small island in in the middle of nowhere in in, in the world comes to like comes to um, um, Australia and sort of wins hearts 
and they sort of i felt like whenever they were commentating in his matches all his five setters they sort of expected it to end at any moment saying yeah it was nice while it sort of lasted uh, this guy this 20 year old kid is going to be a great hope for the future they were always yeah. prepared how many times they say that right your boss huh? yeah how yeah. many times they say that like you know they constantly kept so firstly his game was nothing like federer's Yeah. I, I know he was playing some beautiful shots, but these Americans were just going for it, right? They were like, <laughs> you know, he's doing to Federer what Federer does to others. That is understandable if you say yeah. that. But they were like, we're really watching the next Roger Federer in the making, and you know, <laughs> he's going to be like, what a snub, man! Like the fact that it did none of this uh, turned out to be the way they were predicting it to uh, kind of go later on in his life. But they were like, you know, we've discovered like the next gem, the guy who's going to dominate tennis along with Federer for the next fifteen years. Okay. Like because his game is exactly like Federer. It's nothing like. It. I mean, it, it. In fact, if it was like anything, it was a lot like um, Federer playing Agassi in back-to-back Grand Slam finals, right? Because in two thousand and five, US he played Agassi. and yeah. this guy was just the younger version of agassi wasn't he yeah he was and and that's uh, again a good point because uh, the way he used to carry himself on court you know if you just try to cut through the hype that the commentators were sort of building up throughout the tournament if you sort of cut through that whole uh, sort of america's got talent britain's got talent packaging you just yeah. sort of see yeah. back this Uh, grow through the tournament and obviously ride. It was a fairy tale story. There's no denying that, and obviously ride on the crowd support. But you could see the way even the broadcasters were sort of briefed on making Baghdadis the the sort of sensation he was during the tournament. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry to sound like a lecherous uncle right now, but we were 19 year old red blooded sort of kids back then in 2006, yeah. and the way they we went after Camille, um, yeah, his girlfriend. Girl- Yeah. Uh, at that point, and you know the the way the cameras focused on her, they uh, you, you know you think I mean obviously then cutting to Baghdad is blushing on court, then sort of <laughs> us blushing in our fucking room, sitting across the world. It was all like very sort of it, it was there was a danger of sort of it uh, hijacking Baghdad is is like lion hearted performance through the tournament yeah. that was well on display the most I think during the final because. Uh, again, when have we seen Federer uh, actually not the crowd favorite this time yeah. again? Again, correct. And see, Camille helped, right? His uh, incredibly hot girlfriend at that point. And like you said, we were nineteen-year-old kids; yeah. they were twenty. Um, it's it, the focus was very heavily on her. She happened to be the stepdaughter of uh, Baghdad Baghdadis's coach at that point. and yeah. uh, again like you said my god we got the history of cyprus by just watching this tournament right <laughs> uh, like he's from the second biggest city yeah. in cyprus after nicosia which is libasol limasol is known for gypsum <laughs> and now it's known for bagdatis they showed bagdatis's house they uh, told us about bagdatis's love for uh, i mean he uh, cyprus is divided into two parts the greek part the predominantly yeah. greek part and the turkish part and he we also knew that he was against uh, you know the military controlled turkish side yeah. they kept showing the map they kept telling us about the mediterranean delicacies that you get around there and every time they used the word delicacy boss they came back to come every <laughs> single time it uh, was yeah. yeah i mean like why and I, I, i don't know what broadcast you watched uh, right now i saw the espn one 
yeah. which basically kept cutting to a gymnasium in Limassol. Yeah, the same one. Yeah, pretty much the same thing I saw. They kept cutting to the gymnasium like within two games of the first set and it was crazy. It, it felt like, you know, I mean, I, I felt sorry for Fedra at some point. I was like, what has he yeah. done to deserve this absolute like one-sided sort no, of... Because he sort was Goliath at this point. You yeah, have to Goliath that to the broadcasters, I mean, right? Exactly. Like, you have to uh, give it to them for selling it the way they did. But, you know, you'd, oh, man. you'd be forgiven for forgetting that Baghdad is... He wasn't exactly a flash in the pan. Of course, he was making it big in this tournament. But the previous year... Yeah. Had been pretty, uh, you know, had been pretty good for him too. Like he had reached the Basel final. Where he, I yeah. think he lost to Gonzalez, and uh, and the and in the U.S. Open he actually took a set off Federer. So it's not like Federer. This was a completely new guy that Federer was facing. who had no idea about his game. Uh, as soon as they walked onto court, you know, I, I mean, they started reeling off Federer's stats. And of course, it was insane because, you know, he had won 24 state finals till he lost to Nalbandin in 2000, in the 2005 Masters final. So, this was basically Federer, you know, getting back to uh, himself and taking, wanting to take revenge for, you know, what Safin had done to him the previous year. So, there was, of course, no hope and everyone was like sort of almost condescending on Baghdadis in a way that, you know, it's great that, it's great for tennis. And I hate it yeah. when people say that, that it's great for the sport because... You don't get it. Like you're, you're literally downplaying every single uh, thing. And Baghdad is at 20 to take it to Fedra the way he did in this final. Because you know, yeah. let's start talking about the match itself now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I honestly like found what uh, the commentators were doing to be condescending as well. Yeah. Because, you know, there's this time and we're going to come to it very shortly when Federer is trailing Baghdatis by quite a bit in this match. Uh, and I think one of the commentators, and come on, man, these guys are fabulous commentators in general. I'm not talking about the Luke Jensen end of it. I'm talking about Patrick McEnroe. Like, this guy is, of course, John's brother and he's played doubles with him. Mm. Uh, has, you know, been a tennis player himself. But the way he drums up the propaganda is unbelievable. Because at one point, he said, just like Stepanek, just like Lubicic, just yeah. like Nalbandian, Federer too is struggling to crack the Baghdatis code. Boss, he's won six Grand Slams in a row. Right? <laughs> His first six Grand Slam finals in a row without dropping even one. No yeah. one's ever done that before. He's about to do number seven in the next two hours yeah. uh, and turn this match around, which is a record that will perhaps never be broken because even Djokovic, Murray and Nadal couldn't come anywhere close to it. Djokovic lost his first ever Grand Slam final. Yeah. So did Murray. And Nadal <laughs> lost his third. Murray right? lost third more than one. <laughs> no, Murray lost four in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are you talking about, man? Like, give that guy... You're, you're watching the greatest player to have ever held a racket. Like, yeah. ever. And you're like, you know, this guy... He's a set down and he's a breakdown. And you're like, even he is struggling... He's going to struggle to crack the Baghdad's code. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, anyway, maybe we should just get down to it. Let's get down to the match art. <laughs> that's just making me angry. It made me angry when I was watching. No, it, it definitely made me angry too because you know I, I was also a nervous Federer fan. I was like, what the hell is happening exactly? Because I'm not used to seeing Federer sort of uh, struggle this much. Uh, the unforced errors were piling up. He wasn't getting his first serves in, and I was like, yeah. you know, it's it's not so much because of Federer losing form. Bagdadis is really, and I, I took Bagdadis lightly within the first two games of the first set. I was like. Oh, okay. This is the first good glimpse I'm having of this guy. Uh, he's, yeah. you know, his forehand feels like he's barely lifting the ball over the net. He had this very funny sort of way uh, uh, of, you know, giving you the illusion that he was struggling to get the power behind the shot. But you yeah. know, trust me, Federer found that deceptively sort of uh, easy to because Bagdadis pretty much ran Federer. Uh, ragged on Federer serve throughout the first set, like every single game was going to deuce. Or getting Feder got broken twice. In fact, in the, even though he got back one of the his serves, uh, Feder was really struggling. And Bagdadis also had this. What I remember from 2006, and I didn't need to really look back this time, is because uh, Bagdadis, while serving, had this very casual sort of. Uh, um, just before his ball toss, he had this very casual way of sort of bouncing yeah. the ball twice yeah. in like a cross in front of his red leg. Like, I was like, at some point, that particular little quirk that he has, has, I mean, that's when you realize that this guy, this kid, this 20-year-old kid actually has major control over his game. Because doing that small little thing before his serve also uh, gave you an idea of how good he was, uh, you know, when it came to sort of controlling the ball and when it came to controlling play. Because the first set, and uh, back in 2006, Here's how it went with most Federer matches where Federer is being pushed. It basically was like a storm uh, where the opponent would have like play the set of his life or play the couple of sets of their lives. And, you know, the commentators were always like, will Federer ride this out? Because it was always about the other players from at some point, his their crazy shot making dipping at some point and Federer just needed to ride the storm. And, you know, like, I know it's a cliche, but that's pretty much what happened in this match because Baghdad is pretty played, pretty much played the first two sets of his life. And yeah. uh, Federer sort of yeah. rode it out. And that's what the greats were doing at that point. That's what people like Roddick and Hewitt had stopped doing. They were starting yeah, to get right. blown away by the power players. They were starting to get blown away by the players who made them run on court. And Federer knew he had the wisdom in him to know that this wasn't going to last for the whole match. And he just needs to somehow get through. But let me tell you, Federer really was on the verge of sort of going away. Because remember the second set. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Exactly. So, just to sum up, the beautifully put firstly, just to sum up the first set, um, Bagdatis' game of, uh, you know, being super strong on both flanks, like a fabulous mover. He didn't um, really have a big serve, but again, like Ardi put it, like he was very deceptive uh, with, you know, just like disarming Federer with his general, like, you know, uh, the like in many ways, lazy elegance, right? He didn't look like he cared enough. Uh, <laughs> and that can be a bit off. I mean, it can, can throw you off. Off, like most certainly, and it was throwing Federer out. Federer was also like, listen, and I, I think we're missing a very key point of the first set here. He was really thrown off by the crowd support for, oh, for, for Bagdatis sure. because you can hear about this. 
he must have heard about how the crowd pulled him through the Lubacic match and the Nadal uh, Nal Nalbandian match. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but it's something else to experience it. And man, see, Rod Laver Arena is 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 really small, right? Yeah. Uh, there are no bad seats in the house, and it really feels like a bullring once you're in there because, like, the what when when the crowd steps it up, the volume really like it. It, it it never really leaves the stadium it doesn't have it doesn't have that uh, you know vent or escape uh, in in the rod laver arena it just stays yeah. inside and it just gets louder and louder and louder and you saw what that greek and cypriot support was like oh, yeah. where yeah. It, it felt a lot like that icelandic support in the 2016 yeah. euro when mm. they would do like those crazy like uh, yeah. you know they'd stand with the players and clap and intimidate the opposition it was very similar that's imagine bagdad is getting that in a tennis match yeah fedor wasn't feeling very good and then his ankle and then the fact that he basically was playing like a younger version of agassi all yeah. at the same time it just it got to fedor a little bit he regained his composure he broke uh, bagdatis back very early on so bagdatis broke yeah. him he broke back yeah. but uh, three straight games uh, when bagdatis was serving 4 5 down and the set was gone it was about that quick like there was there's not much more analysis that you can really do with that first set yeah and he was 40 love up on his own serve and he lost huh. that he, he lost he got broken like b- yeah. before he knew it as you said yep and uh, yeah also it's a it's a good uh, thing up uh, the greek support you know the the noise in the stadium especially the greeks uh, you know you also have to remember that the support the re- reason you probably also mentioned the whole iceland thing in 2016 this yeah. was literally a football stadium support because greece were the 2004 european champions and they had come to australia as those as those people with like you know with certain point boss yeah. incredible point that's that's what they came and you could sense it in their voices in their noise that they had tasted blood on the world stage and this was going to be yet another opportunity so they th- those football chants were totally like in the zone and that's what as you said it threw a fedra and you could see that he was I wouldn't say he was cracking under pressure, but he was hmm. making uncharacteristic errors. He was shanking the ball. He was shanking those forehands, and you know I yeah. got used to the shanks a lot. Like ask any Federer <laughs> fan, and they'll slap you in that decade, saying that you know his shanks were the most annoying thing, especially his backhand <laughs> ones, when you know you're just supposed to get it back in. And there were players like Nadal and Uet who were just like going rallies and rallies without like uh, committing an error, and Federer was just throwing away these points and. uh that's how the first set ended as you said he lost three games in a row and it was over 7-5 yeah uh, okay firstly on greek football and uh the connection between euro 2004 and uh this slam in 2006 fabulous like absolutely fabulous uh second point on on federer shanking um great segue because i was just going to come to the second set where mm. now federer's broken already in his first service game bagdatis yeah. holds now federer's serving love to down yeah. yeah you know what i'm getting to right i remember this so basically there's a there's a medium long rally with bagdatis and federer chips his backhand 
it lands in the on the tram line of the service box basically like just sitting up for bagdatis but yeah. bagdatis bagdatis at this point is like sitting quite deep um uh, uh you know on like you know slightly behind his baseline right. and he charges this this chip this miss hit by fedra and he's completely taken off court and he lunges and he gets the ball and by then obviously federer's cut off the angle and he's standing in the yeah. center of the court to volley the ball away he's got a completely open court to put the ball away mm-hmm. if the ball does come back to him in the first place yeah uh bagdatis lunges gets the ball by the frame of his racket it comes back to federer and federer very casually flicks it yeah. cross court and it goes wide and nobody <laughs> in the stadium can believe what happened yeah. i don't know if i described it well enough but no, you did describe the last uh, the last two shots perfectly it was so casual yeah, that yeah. <laughs> uh, i think federer kind of shocked himself there yeah yeah he did he he, he i think he lent on the net also almost he did oh, he yeah. did uh, because then at that point while watching this replay and i can uh, i have to be honest here i cannot remember this point too well from 2006 when i was watching it live but yesterday when i was watching this i was like man is he injured because i really thought like it was over he was going to throw in the towel or maybe like bagdatis that like, you know his his level dropped after that none of this is none of this happened none of this is true uh, yeah. federer just stepped it up um but and he wasn't that injured but mm. it really looked like a guy who was on his last legs that that miss hit that miss hit also took him to love to 3040 right had he lost yeah had he lost yeah. that history he lost that point it was three love for bagdatis and yeah. hypothetically four love because he would have served it out with that yeah. kind of momentum on his side yeah uh we we are looking at a very different final here because Federer has been pushed to a couple of four setters and one five setter already in this Aussie Open. Yeah. Uh I and with a sore ankle and the crowd against him. See, it's very different to have the crowd against you in uh Australia versus in the previous Grand Slam final uh mm-hmm. that he played in which was against Agassi in the US Open. That's expected. Yeah. Right? The New York crowd is of course going to support the old man. Yeah. Um who's also the underdog who's also the American champion and this mm-hmm. is America. in in australia to have like a bunch of like you know greeks show up match after match and give bagdatis that kind of support yeah. which actually made the commentators go and do some research as well and find out that 300000 um, immigrants in um, melbourne melbourne were of greek and cypriot heritage right and a big chunk of them was showing up uh, to give bagdatis that support it definitely rattled federer imagine mm. him being four love uh, 754 love down yeah and and uh, i had soon reached this uh, this point that you mentioned i was mm. pretty much expecting he was break point down after this and i was pretty much expecting a three love and then you know maybe a four love or whatever even a three love was bad enough and as a fan and i was like uh, Okay, this is going to. This is reaching Miami 2005 levels right now. Uh, Miami, <laughs> and like where you know he was down to Nadal, like two sets down, and then a breakdown in the third. I was like, if he could claw it back from there against Nadal, uh, uh, you know, I, I was wasn't too concerned, but it was 
uh, a startling experience for a lot of us to see uh, you know federer making those kind of you know absolute blooper errors uh, yeah. in, in and that to at such crucial points on serve uh, as you said you know it would have been such a different final if uh, he had gone on to lose that one point then but you know that one point has probably haunted federer in different ways over the years so you know this uh, the fact that he sort of clawed back and uh, yeah. uh, and sort of came back somehow to claw back to win make it three all and then you know two all firstly yeah 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 two all firstly and then you know sort of take it to towards the end of the set uh, and bagdadis you know then losing his serve after being 40 up himself was quite something because you know like yeah. uh, it was the same thing that federer was facing only minutes ago and suddenly against the stadium against the you know the general neutral global support uh you know federer had sort of regained and you could almost sense the commentators also at this point saying that you know of course he was going to come back and these same commentators like in a very sort of steve slater sort of way before that is like oh he's going one minute a lap can he do it if one second a lap can he, can he manage 10 seconds and like they were trying to make it as interesting as possible because they had pretty much stopped short of declaring that bagdadis is going to make history today and then like just minutes later federer was back in the front seat and you could see uh, at least for me i had seen this before so i could see bagdadis even the crowd that was supporting him slowly towards the end of the second set get deflated knowing that bagdadis had probably gone for broke and sort of yeah. put his body on the line for the first two sets and if he doesn't win this second set it's pretty much over yeah spot on um i just I, i so talking about being haunted by a couple of points uh, you were saying this from federer's perspective with bagdatis it's quite obvious that uh, when when federer serving love to 30 40 down i yeah. think that point is perhaps going to haunt him for the rest of his life maybe he's not that kind of a guy where you know yeah. maybe he's forgotten it and he's really happy with carolina shprem yeah. uh, and his and his and his many kids but uh, yeah i mean he's a tennis player after all yeah. there but like having said that uh, i i i really want to say that for for a 20 year old playing in his second career title match right yeah. the first like you said was basil yeah. now the second one the aussie open against the greatest player of all time already mm. right like you know in a 24 year old guy who's won his first six slam finals in a row is going to reel in pete sampras very very soon Yeah. Um uh like for, okay so for a guy, just just some perspective for a guy playing that guy in his very first grand slam final unseeded 20 years old the the crowd like you know expecting him to win like full of miracles every single game he mm. was unbelievably calm and composed he really was yeah, and that, that kind of helped him get to 5 6 40 love Yeah. I think these are three points that he really regrets as well. Like, yeah. So this is basically um, uh, Bagdatis serving uh, mm. with, with basically three points, uh, three game points to send this set into a tiebreak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's unbelievable how Federer turned it around from there to win. for first five straight points in a row to win that set 7-5 and then to win you know 
six games in a row and then five games in a row. So, 11 games in a row after that. But yeah. those five points in a row first were, were pretty incredible at the end of the second. Do you, uh, do you remember the specifics of those points? Because it's all a blur. I do. Right? I do. Hmm. So, there's... At, so, okay, so let's get back to 5-6-40 love. That's yeah. where Bagdatis is serving. Yeah. He's, his mind is probably already in the tiebreak at this point. Yeah, exactly. So, there is one backhand on the run and on the rise is mm. what I've written down in my notes that makes it 40-15. It really shows you that Federer's kind of like... Uh, he was also He was also charging the net a little more often at this point. But like to take that single-handed backhand when it was already like, you know, the ball was somewhere near his shoulder because he had chipped, yeah. he had basically chipped and charged already. Yeah. And to hit that winner um, mm. down the line or up the line from the angle where we were watching it, uh, where the camera was was seated, man, fabulous. 40-15 shook uh, Bagdatis a little bit. The next one was a perfect overhead. Uh, so Bagdatis lobbed Federer beautifully. Federer pedaled back from the net. And yeah. uh, this was one of those sky hooks that uh, yeah. only Federer can play. That <laughs> made it 40-30. And then there was a Bagdatis uh, error, which was obviously coming by this point. It was due. Yeah. So that made it deuce. And then after that, Federer just took the next two points. It, 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 yeah. not, nothing sensational there. Yeah, that, that point you mentioned at 40 love, which Federer sort of won to make it 40-15. Yeah, the on like the run? You, yeah, the on the run. That's, you know, at 40 love down when the other guy is serving, that's when Federer actually comes up with his best go for broke, I don't give a fuck points. Because, you know, even Federer's, yeah. Federer's mind is on the tie break by now. He's like, 40 love, it has, he has nothing to lose. Most players come up with their best tennis at that point. And yeah. because, you know, really Federer wasn't expecting much from that point from the, you know, from the sound of it. And to sort of <laughs> even attempt that kind of shot with a single-handed backhand is, you know, it, it's pretty much, you. if you hadn't told me the uh, game score, the point score at that point, I would have anyway guessed it because that's a very, <laughs> that was, that's a very Federer thing to do. And, uh, you know, and then managing to get the momentum on basis of that point, I can imagine being in Bagdadis' place, you know, being 20 and uh, seeing him do make that shot and be like, okay, is this my time? Like, I can totally imagine him sort of wondering, okay, the, the dream is sort of fading. I think I gave it my all. I think, you know, it was a good run. I think Federer is waking up. You know, so yeah. Uh, yeah, and if it had gone to a tie break, you never know. Obviously, Federer could might have still won it, but the fact that he took it, uh, as you said, uh, five points in a row, and then of course did not give Bagdadis a look in for the next one hour, it was pretty yeah. amazing. It was a bagel, and then you know, Bagdadis just won two games after that, right? That's right, that's right. But uh, there was this amazing moment in the broadcast that both of us were watching it on uh, yeah. now that. Yeah. I found out what you were watching it on too. Where Brad Gilbert, um, who yeah. famously um, wrote Winning Ugly and also uh, coached uh, Agassi in his, in his comeback, yeah. right? When he came back from 140, like, you know, 143 to kind of like absolutely win everything under the sun. Yeah. Uh, he was calling this match in the studio, weirdly enough. He wasn't doing commentary. <laughs> And when Federer won that second set, he said it. And it really takes balls to say something like this on air, on ESPN. 
where he went like, uh, I can see Federer winning this set six love or six one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he was like, I just, I just saw the tide turn here and Federer's feeling it now and Bagdatis is mentally broken. And he really was because the next set was six love. And uh, it, it could very easily have been a bagel in the, in the fourth yeah, as well. Exactly. Yeah. But somehow, Bagdatis clung on. Because like you said, a lot of players play their best tennis when uh, they have nothing to lose. And uh, I mean, Bagdatis had pretty much lost it all at this point. Yeah. So he somehow, somehow held on. But that was it. I mean, it was it was exhibition tennis again. Yeah, it was exhibition, and that's that's Federer like being the world number one that we knew, not the Federer who played the first set, uh, not the Klatsch play, not yeah, the Djokovic like Federer. Not the, yeah, not the Djokovic like it was just sort of a practice match after that, and Federer does his most ridiculous stuff after that. The commentators get orgasms, the crowd, <laughs> you know, the crowd yeah. even like lose their shit, and Federer is just like sort of. And that's, that's you know, that's a Federer I, even I personally miss because he used to do that a lot in his glory days. Uh, now, when he's ahead, he doesn't really run away with it the way, uh, you know, he used to. So, you know, this, the, the exhibition that he put on in the third and fourth set, I know a lot of us took it for granted. But man, those were some fucking insane shots that he played yeah. in the, especially in the fourth set. Because the third set was pretty much Baghdad is also dipping. But the fourth yeah. set, you you sense that Baghdadis was trying to hold on. He was resisting a little more. And some of those Federer backhands, I mean, whoever said that was his weakest, like, sort of shot yeah. at that point, because that, that was nuts. And so, you know, I it the way he ran away with the match and, you know, then winning his seventh Grand Slam final in a row, uh, yeah. I, I just saw a stat that it was only his 35th title. Can you imagine? He's on 100... <laughs> He's on 103 right now. So, it doesn't oh, feel like that long back. But it was only his 35th title. So, and, and pretty much easy. most of those titles came in those last two and a half years, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, again, correct. So, um, I was going to... Yeah, okay, now I remembered. Uh, you were describing how he beat Bagdatis in the, in the final two sets. The turnaround, the, the orgasmic tennis, as you put it. Yeah. was very similar to how he turned it around against Nicholas Kiefer in the semi-final as well. Uh, and to the point where this, the, the scoreline in the th- in the third and the fourth are the same. It's 6-love, six 6-2. Love, 6-love, six 6-2. Six exactly the same. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, that's how he turned it around. In fact, it's, it's very similar to how he turned it around against Agassi in the 2005 US Open final as well. Correct. Although yeah. the scoreline wasn't the same, it was exhibition tennis for the last two sets. Yeah, it's amazing. You can actually sense the opponent be like, okay, that's it. That's all I can do. Go up, you know, that's that's all I can give. And, you know, they pretty, and yeah. it, it, they basically count on the fact that they can break Federer mentally with their best tennis of their life for, say, one set or one and a half sets. And the problem yeah. is they can only manage it for one and a half sets most of the time. <laughs> and they depend on Federer sort of succumbing to pressure for the rest of the half of that set. The problem is Federer never used to succumb to that pressure. He used to always get a looking back like he did with those five points against Baghdadis. Towards the end, when the other players like, okay, this is it. I've stretched Federer to the limit. I think he's going to sort of uh, explode now or he's going to break. And, you know, that's that last three games of every uh, world-class set by the opponent that Federer used to really sneak in on. Fantastic. 
So before we get to my favorite part of this show and all the shows that I do with RD, which is the aftermath, yeah. uh, I just want to very quickly add that uh, this was also the first Grand Slam uh, in which Federer had met his idol and his hero Rod Laver for the very first time. Oh. Weirdly enough, I mean, we see Laver attending every single uh, Aussie Open, um, uh, uh, if not. Every other, you know, slam as well, like, like Wimbledon, we see him quite often. US Open, he's sitting right in front at Arthur Ashe. This is the first time he attended the the Aussie Open after the the the, the you know the the main court was named after him. So Federer, obviously, like I mean, you could see later on in his. In his uh, post-match presentation uh, uh, speech as well, that he was really shaken because, like, it was Labour who gave him the trophy, the Norman Brooks Trophy. But like, I'm sure that would have added, knowing knowing Federer, knowing his love for history and for Labour now, I'm sure that was one more factor that added pressure on him in the first two sets. I don't know if you agree, but I have a feeling that Labour's presence affected him. Could be the very first time. Yeah, totally could be. I mean, I totally imagine that because, you know, like, of course, most of us remember Lever from the more popular matches down the years, especially the 2009 yeah. match on which our podcast is named after. But, uh, yeah, Lever being... He nearly said it here. Huh? Uh, carry on, but he nearly said it here too. Yeah. When he started weeping in the in the presentation... Yeah. And he was like, you know, usually presentations are difficult, but uh, this one is a mess. And he says, God, and he stops immediately after that. <laughs> yeah. He's about to say, God, God, it's killing me. But he, uh, he left that for a greater final, I think. Yeah, he saved it up. Yeah, that I'm, I'm pretty sure that could be the case. Because we all forget Peter was only 24 years old at this point. He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't inhuman as such. Of course, his tennis was on another level, but mentally he was still finding himself. So, you know, with Lever there, I'm pretty sure he sort of felt the heat of the gaze on him more than ever. Spot on. Exactly. Uh, and he also choked when he when he said Rod Lever's name and then he yeah. tried to give Lever like this really... Uh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was just a clumsy hug by the end of it. <laughs> it yeah, was, no, man, Roger. Yeah, it, it, it's so funny, man. I was watching it after so long. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was choking up watching it. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, it's Yeah, but let's uh, come to the aftermath because that's obviously our favorite part now. Yeah, favorite. So, um, yeah, um, there's, I mean, there's some fabulous points on both guys. Uh, who do you want to start with? Do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'm, I actually am curious to find out Baghdadis' immediate aftermath, like, in the 2009 ah. season because uh, a lot of us noticed that you know he never quite reached these heights again yeah exactly so let me sum up Baghdatis very quickly then right yeah. so he goes to the French Open after this and he loses a five so the beauty was Baghdatis hadn't lost a five setter in his life coming into this Aussie Open and he also exited it without having lost a five setter because he lost to Federer in four in the final yeah. Uh, in the second round in the French, he finally lost his first five-setter. It was to Julian Benetton. Uh, this was after he went two sets up, right? In the second round. Yeah. Then he goes to Wimbledon 
and uh, he beats Sebastian Grosjean, oh. Andy Murray, and Leighton Hewitt in the run-up to the semi-final, oh, where he loses to Nadal in straight sets. Nadal oh, beats him. Rascal so, player, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine, man. Because, yeah, like, he, it could have been the making of a grass court player because I'm going to come to it shortly after. Let me just finish this quickly. Yeah. Which is, so he loses in the semi-final to Nadal. Mm-hmm. Um, goes to the US Open and, of course, loses in the second round to Agassi. Uh, I'm, I'm later going to read out one very short quote that Agassi wrote in his book, Open on Baghdadis. Yeah. But basically, he loses in five sets to Agassi. The mm. next year, he can't replicate what he's done at the Aussie Open. He loses in the second round. Right. But this is important. And I mention this because it's, it's, it's really like critical to Bagdatis's career. Bagdatis gets to the quarterfinal of Wimbledon mm. and loses to Novak Djokovic in five. Oh, after shit. fighting back from two sets down. He mm. loved this two sets up, two sets down thing, yeah. man. <laughs> right? He... Wins set three and uh, set four, loses set five, and never makes the quarterfinal of a Grand Slam again. He was 21. Oh, man. Are you kidding me? Djokovic ended that, hurt. that fucking hurt, man. Like, oh, I mean, uh, apart from it being a snub on these commentators, because come on, how can you build a guy up like yeah, the way they did? I, 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 and like you and all of us, like I really felt sorry for Bagdatis, man. Shit. He was 21. He never made a Grand Slam quarterfinal again. Oh man, he was 21. That is actually a shocker because you keep thinking Bagdatis because, you know, he only retired recently, you know. So you keep thinking he's been around for a long time, but you tend to forget that in 2007 uh, and 2008, he was still in his very early 20s. And oh man, I can't believe he lost to Djokovic and never made an. That sounds familiar. But yeah. uh, I actually yeah. watched this new house, Adi. The uh, the, the, the uh, Djokovic match, funnily uh, enough, yeah. And uh, also, incidentally, in 2008, there was this little Baghdadis spark. Hmm. Uh, although none of this matters because he's never made a quarterfinal again. Hmm. Um, we were having one of our long EA Sports nights. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we switched over to Hewitt Bagdatis uh, in the third round because it started as late as 12 o'clock at night uh, Australia time, 11.58. And it lasted nearly five hours. It got over at 4.50 in the morning with Bagdatis losing in five. Oh, man. Yeah, that was the last of him. Man. That's yeah. pretty and much. Yeah, I know. That's I remember. also the... the the latest ma- like the the latest a match has ended in australia right at 5 in the morning yeah like it wasn't yeah as you said even agassi one of agassi's last matches was bagdadis that legendary five setter that uh, agassi managed to win when he retired and then, then he retired his after his last this. win was his last yeah. win was bagdadis his last win was bagdadis and all of us sort of expected another run before he lost to benjamin becker obviously yeah so uh, yeah. yeah that the very that, next round that was another thing Baghdadis was very famous for, at least in my eyes, because that match was something else. Uh, yeah. yeah, so coming to Fedra's aftermath, I mean, it's, yeah, only, please it's, go for it. it's only the beginning of the 2006 season. Uh, simply put, it's 92-5. Uh, 
he goes through the whole season losing only five matches but years uh, the you know the beginning of that era because five four of those five matches were to this kid called rafael nadal uh, um. and uh, one of them a lot of people may forget is just the tournament after the australian open on a hard court three of them were on clay but one was in the dubai final and uh, that's when i personally and a lot of other fedor fans i'm sure started to realize that nadal is not only a clay court player he is actually fashioning his game to beat federer not to beat everyone else or not to win on one particular surface because winning in dubai you know for a lot of people who don't know dubai has had pretty quick courts back in 2006 and winning that final against federer Uh, sort of set the alarm bells ringing in my head because you know as we know nadal was going to reach the french open final win it then the wimbledon final also before losing to federer in like four close sets but um, so five out of uh, four out of those five matches federer loses to nadal uh, he wins pretty much everything else but the other one match he loses federer loses to uh, another kid called andy murray <laughs> so you know we sort of of course he was taken and you know he could have finished the trifecta because he came very close to losing to novak djokovic on clay uh, yeah. just a couple of weeks into the clay court season and uh, that's when we sort of saw uh, the beginning of this new era because the other three were really taking leaps and bounds and federer was obviously still hanging on very well because losing only five matches all year i mean it was a better season arguably than 2005 uh, he won three slams out of four uh, they as, you know as uh, as a lot of uh, websites then said the andy murray loss in the middle of the year uh, uh, on the hard court season on the i think the american hard court season uh, yeah. i think yeah. the summer hard court season after federer lost uh, at cincinnati i think to andy murray Uh, he did not lose a match again all year which was like 29 straight matches in a row so i mean 2006 was peak federer in every way it was also peak yep. federer in a way that he lost only to one man and that one man he lost only to one man a lot yep. over the next few podcast but i personally enjoyed <laughs> the 2006 season uh, for me it was an awakening because for me there was finally going to be a very worthy and more than like you know equal rival to him for the rest oh, of yeah. the season but of course the the 2006 australian open that we just discussed was also the last of federer sort of uh, swatting away rivals who were not named rafael nadal uh, <laughs> because you know, the next few years it was a lot of federer nadal there was of course the odd rodic and the odd gonzales in the final but you yeah. know they were really only uh side notes most of the time so yeah that was pretty much the aftermath of course it was only the beginning of the season so i'm sure we are going to be discussing another match uh of this season in the next podcast too absolutely and uh, so many brilliant points that you brought up just uh one of them uh, that i want to highlight uh, and i love that you mentioned that you uh to 2005 is possibly a greater season for federer than 2006 although he won only two grand slams versus yeah. three because of just how incredible that was but yes 2006 like you said he just pretty much lost to one guy right yeah. uh talking of andy murray we didn't mention this right in the beginning but murray did play his very first aussie open in 2006 and he lost to juan ignacio chela 
Djokovic in the very first round. Uh, yeah. Djokovic also lost in the first round to Ooh. some guy called Paul Goldstein. Yeah. So yeah. you know they they still weren't coming there. But one more thing with the with the Federer aftermaths, uh, you of course did mention that he lost to Nadal in the French final. Yeah. Um, this was his first. So it basically made it seven one in terms of Grand Slam finals. Yeah. Uh, for for Federer, he hadn't lost a final till that point. So bittersweet in many ways because making his first Roland Garros final. Yeah. Uh, and then losing to that one bugger who he just didn't know how to get past at that point. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'd also have to mention uh, a week before the French Open final, Federer had match points in the Rome final in a best of five, <laughs> in a massive five setter. He had match points against Nadal on clay and blew it 15 40. Uh, still blew it. Um, Nadal, it took so much out of both players. They did not play the next tournament and they kept themselves fresh for uh, another tilt at the French Open. Sweet. Um, on the Agassi uh, win against Baghdatis in 2006, this is what he had to say in his book, Open. Um he said, uh, you know, usually he doesn't, basically, I'm just filling you in, he doesn't like to play practice sets in a Grand Slam against, um, you know, fellow competitors. But he gave Bagdatis a go because he just liked the way he smiled, right? Yeah. That's what I'm just going to start with. Yeah. He, go, he goes like, uh, he asked if it would be all right if they filmed us practicing. Sure, I said, why not? I won mm. the practice set 6-2 and afterward he was all smiles. I saw that he's the type who smiles when he's happy or nervous, and you can't tell which. <laughs> it reminded me of someone, but I couldn't think who. I told Bagdatis that he played a little like me, and he said it was no accident. He grew up with pictures of me on his bedroom wall, patterned his game after mine. In other words, tonight I'll be playing my mirror image. He'll <laughs> play from the back of the court, take the ball early, swing for the fences, all just like me. It's going to be toe-to-toe tennis, each of us trying to impose our will, each of us looking for chances to smoke a backhand up the line. He doesn't have an overwhelming serve, nor do I, which means long points, long rallies, lots of energy and time expended. I brace myself for flurries, combinations, a tennis of attrition, the most brutal form of the sport. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, like great excerpt. Like that's an amazing way to sort of uh, put Baghdadis into perspective too because that smile I wanted to mention earlier too in the podcast that <laughs> smile was disarming as fuck like at times I didn't know if Baghdadis was lucky that he was dating Kamil or Kamil was lucky that she was <laughs> <laughs> that, that smile was pretty awesome like even I was like even when he was pretty much running Federer ragged in the final and I saw that smile I'm like you know it's fine if one player is allowed to do it it's okay <laughs> okay, so then I have one final anecdote on the smile before we end it. Can I go for it? Yeah, yeah. So, in the 2012 Australian Open, which is, of course, known for absolute greatness, right? Yeah. Um, there was a lesser-known match in which Bagdatis took on Vavrinka and at some point got so frustrated that he broke, I think, five or six rackets in the span of 30 seconds. <laughs> he just kept breaking it. He kept pulling out rackets with its uh, plastic yeah. sheath on it and slamming it against the floor, uh, against the surface. 
and of course like he got violations and then he got like uh, court abuse and he was doctor point yeah. and he looked inside his bag there was just one racket left he pulled it out he was about to smash it he didn't smash it he picked it up and then that smile came on because it was his last racket and <laughs> he had, that he had to forfeit the match to vavrinka <laughs> and uh the crowd basically rose and and gave him a standing ovation and i i really think it was because of that redeem re, very redeeming smile right at the end of it amazing amazing yeah yeah totally that that smile was pretty much a massive weapon of his game honestly yep adi that was uh, that. Uh, that i hope this healed uh, a little bit of those july 14th wounds but uh, um really let's not go so far all right all right <laughs> We'll yeah. be back soon, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, guys.